Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow. And I am Phineas Ellis, the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a podcast where we cover relevant and recent topics and trends in the consumer startup space. We have an exciting episode today. We're going to talk about retail. We're going to talk about experiential and how it lives in the startup culture and landscape. And we have a really exciting guest. Our guest today is Katie Hunt, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to today. And uh, yeah, so thank you for joining us, Katie. Dan, it's always great to see you. I'm excited to get to hang out with you in this context. Phineas came into Warby Parker so excited and was such a great hire. I mean, I think the entire team still to this day was thrilled to have him. And I love that you're still working in kind of the retail startup world. So that's super exciting. Um, yeah, I, you know, listen, I was super fortunate to be the third employee for Warby Parker. What I thought was going to be a pretty simple customer service job definitely turned into something that became a passion. And I fell in love with startups thanks to that incredible team and, and them really pushing me to, to learn a lot of things outside of my comfort zone. And, and after I left Warby, I became a consultant. I worked across 32 different startups over the course of four years as either a co-founder for hire or a strategist uh, and working with about four startups at a time. Everyone from The Arrivals and Anami to Saludos, but some great, great companies. And then uh, I took on Hinge as a client. And at that time, Hinge was swipe left and right, very similar to Tinder. Uh, I fell in love with their team. I fell in love with the problem that they were trying to solve. I ended up coming in-house for a year and a half as their chief brand officer, helping to create the new product, the new brand, and relaunching them in 2016. I then started a fund called The Fund, where I raised money from founders uh, who had all built companies in New York, uh, and then we invest that capital back into companies that are being built in New York. And we actually just expanded the fund to LA and London as well, uh, and we are the most active pre-seed fund in the world now, which is really awesome and great. But I guess I'm a terrible VC because the first company to pitch me at The Fund was Showfield's. And uh, Tal, who is now my co-founder, uh, <laughs> pitched me on this idea of retail as a service. And it was just so brilliant. And coming from Warby and seeing how meaningful retail was for us. I mean, we now have over 100 stores for Warby. I just knew that retail was super hard, but it was also really meaningful for direct-to-consumer businesses. And Showfields is a platform that uh, has physical retail. And that physical retail is flexible and allows direct-to-consumer companies to really have their own physical presence uh, and not have sort of the headache of running that store. And we also now have live video shopping. So it's kind of a platform that connects consumers uh, to all different kinds of brands in a discovery mechanism. I'm going to jump right in. That's a, a great Summary. Obviously, you've been around for a long time in the startup. You're landscape. making me sound old now, Finn. <laughs> no, I, you, you've been around. This is really important to have perspective on the industry. You know, one of the themes, there's a number of themes that are emerging from this show that we're doing. And one of the themes is the pop culturization of startup culture, the hmm. how we've started to talk about startups and the founders and DTC, you know, it's, it's buzzword laden pop culturization in that when bad things happen, the New York Times is now breaking these stories. Um, <laughs> and these are inside baseball stories about startups that, you know, six, seven, eight years ago was, uh, people had never heard of 90% of these companies or even this business model in a lot of ways. And so, it's really changed quite rapidly. And so I think that as a, just as a framing of this conversation is, is interesting. And I think retail, uh, one of the other evolutions in this space has been a move away from a grow at all costs approach to a let's become profitable. Let's look at yeah. our margin. Let's grow sustainably, right? And so you know, retail is a really interesting representation of all of these shifts because retail, to me, has always been, to your point, incredibly meaningful to these companies. 
but also very kind of sexy and appealing in a bright light kind of way. For a lot of early stage founders, they go, okay, when can we open a retail store? And I've had many conversations over the years about advising people on retail, but a lot of those conversations ended up being advising people against it at this stage. <laughs> so I, I wanted to just quickly ask you a very broad question, attack it how, however you like on the evolution of retail over the last 10 years, <laughs> the evolution of retail to where it comes today. Softballing to, questions here. Are yeah, we? <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just want you to try to frame it up. When we first started this retail yeah. evolution, it was something very different than it is today. And if you had to do a quick summary, how would you describe it? We want to hear your perspective and then I'm, I'm going to give mine and see if they overlap. I think it used to be that we thought there were two separate continents. And this is, uh, you know, a thesis that myself and, and Tal, my co-founder, one of my co-founders at Showfields have worked on, that there was traditional retail on sort of one side of the aisle. And on the other side, we had direct-to-consumer. And we thought they were very separate continents and we thought they were competitive with each other. But in the same way, we realized that everybody needed to have e-commerce, no matter if you were traditional retail or direct to consumer. You know, I think what has happened is people realize the value of the consumer that they acquire in a physical space and how supercharged that consumer is. And so instead of there being sort of one side of the aisle, which is traditional retail and one side of the aisle, which is direct to consumer, I believe those two things and we believe those two things have merged together into one continent, which we call C-commerce. And C-commerce is consumer commerce. It is commerce that is most convenient, the most curated, the most community focused, and it's built entirely around the consumer. In the same way, if you look at any direct-to-consumer company, including Warby Parker, they are looking at a business model through the perspective of a consumer and saying, what is easier for the consumer? Is it easier for them to try their glasses on at home? Is it easier to have them you know, delivered at home? Is it, is it better to only pay $95? I believe that retail has become C-commerce and there are ways in which it's more convenient and better for a consumer to meet a product in a physical space. I don't think that traditional retail as it stands works. I don't think holding inventory and being sort of tied to this idea that you have to hit it out of the park for 99% of your inventory for your business model to work or for you to not be able to change things rapidly when things aren't working. There are things about the, the retail model that don't work, but I think there are things about the retail model that really work. And so it's about making retail more flexible so that it is more attractive to the consumer and so that it is a better experience overall. I agree with everything you just said, and it's also great because I was not going to say any of those things. Uh, <laughs> that, that is absolutely true. And, and I think how that connects to what I was thinking was, like you just said, there's this like misnomer that retail and e-com are these two opposite strategies that you can only have one. And I also think there's this misnomer that cutting out the middleman is going online only. The, the original vertical retailer or one of the original vertical retailers was Lululemon. Like traditionally you're a brand, you make your own stuff, you sell it to retailers who then sell your brand and many other brands. And Lululemon is, was one of the first companies to say, we're going to make our own stuff and sell it in our own store. And that's us going direct to the consumer. And they proved out how you can build community and create this great experience and create a more long lasting relationship with your customers by having a physical space to interact with them with. The difference is when they started in the early 2000s, selling online wasn't a thing yet. And so today's companies, direct to consumer brands, they start online because you can get really fast scale with fewer costs. They, you don't have to spend on building out a store and then wait to develop a community and so on and so forth. You can just, any place where you can ship, you can sell to. And so you get this really broad customer base early on. And then once you're big enough, you can develop deep relationships with your customers via retail stores. That's the model that Warby did. A lot of companies are doing it. Some are doing it earlier than others. At Borough, we did a store very early on and have kind of stuck with just one store model for a while to learn and continue to learn more and more before doing a, a broad rollout. But as you said, Katie, it's really hard to be nimble and flexible with retail. And I think a lot of companies make these mistakes early on with retail and a mistake on your website, you can change within a day or a matter of months for big changes versus a store 
could take a long time. And I'm going to give an example. And this is actually one of the first times we chatted in person. You came to our co-working space on 17th Street and you were looking at our newly launched website. We had this bright yellow background and a young guy in pajamas on the couch. And it was really attention grabbing. And it was, I guess, in my mind, like the e-com equivalent of Museum of Ice Cream. And like when you first come to the site and you were like, yeah, it's cool. But you know what would be even better is if you just shot a more premium, realistic lifestyle photo that had real people in it doing real things in the living room. And that would convert better. It'd be more relatable. And that's exactly what we did. And that was a really quick turnaround. But can you imagine if we'd had a store that was like that and you came in and you were like, oh man, (laughs) you you need to change everything about this. And I hope you have a couple hundred thousand dollars to spend. I Um, like that I just walk into people's office and tell them things I don't like about their company. (laughs) It's, you know, it's a great habit. Um, No, but I mean, you guys have... I think really knocked it out of the park with your physical locations as well, because I think you've approached it in a way of almost modular pieces within a whole. And so you very easily and quickly kind of switched out the pieces within it that you didn't think were working and and moved very quickly into new concepts within it. And so I think that's what we're both saying. and, And what I think is the really interesting part about being on the flexible side, it's, being able to test in the same way you would a website and to understand what's working and not working and to fully own your data as well, which, you know, you don't get the ability to do in a wholesale model. You're not really understanding why something's converting at a retail location where you're not owning the interaction and you're not understanding the foot traffic and you're not understanding the demographic fully. I think the the future of retail is, is not just about flexibility. It's about iteration and testing iteration and being able to very quickly be like, great, I want to try this because that's the whole, the whole point. It's you're, you're not supposed to open your first store on the first day and knock it out of the park. And I, it's not what we promise when brands are coming into showfields either. We promise the ability to test. We promise the ability to re-merchandise, to redesign, to change all the screens, to change all the messaging until you figure it out. It, you know, Warby had the an amazing advantage of having a showroom in our offices for three years before we opened our first physical location. And getting to hear each of the customers through that experience, getting to change even when they were folding tables, the tables to different locations and the assortments. I mean, it's it's life-changing to be able to do all of that before you actually are spending millions of dollars on opening your own physical location. Yeah, this is something I just think that's so insightful in so many ways. There are things that we learn from the people that come before us in startups And then it seems like the next generation, there's a lot of examples of people that forget those lessons and and, and try to apply them as though they are the ones that came before them and they're not, right? And so a couple examples of that that you touched on, and this is something that really frustrates me in in the retail landscape, is that, you know, people reference Warby Parker a lot and Warby Parker has all these stores and, you know, they spare no expense. They're beautiful. They're well-designed. They're in prime real estate. And people think, okay, it's kind of like an if you build it, they will come mentality. Look, retail could not be further from if you build it, they will come. Retail is if you build it and it's the right time and you design it well and you have good marketing around it and you activate it with cool experiences and your staff is well-trained and there's intentionality about your merchandising and it's in the right location. The right location, not the most highly trafficked location. Absolutely. Then they will come. And I think what Warby Parker did that you just mentioned is iterated in so many different ways, tried so many different things before they opened a full scale store. I mean, Phineas, you drove a bus. I drove a school bus around the country for a year, popping up in parking lots. (laughs) The Warby Parker store. But that was granular data collection. Absolutely. If you really look at it, when they began to actually take real estate, they looked at all the data of how the bus performed in each location, and they were able to move it within cities and understand different neighborhoods and where it converted best. It takes time. It takes time. It takes money. It takes strategy to really build a brand before you know people are showing up for your brand and coming out and driving and spending their time. And so I think 
experiential marketing, similar to what Burroughs doing, you know, similar to what Showfields is doing, where you're creating an experience where no matter what, even if the customer doesn't buy anything, it was a worthy use of their time to come over and have an activity or see a speaker or come to an event those things seem to be converting higher on the retail side. It's because you're building it for the consumer. At the end of the day, they're going to walk out happy no matter what. Um, and they're going to tell their friends that they had a great experience. And so that's its own flywheel as well. I want to dig into that a little bit. I think experiential retail is a broad sweeping term that gets applied to many different things. Some good, some bad. Some very bad. <laughs> some very, very, very bad. And it almost gives it a bad rap. Um, So two-part question, has the bad side of experiential retail, like how have you experienced that in both fundraising or explaining your concept and explaining show fields and the strategy? I'm sure there's been backlash from that, just as anybody who runs a co-working space got backlash Mm -hmm. from WeWork, right? It's inevitable. Yeah. But the first part is break down for us why you think there has been an explosion of the negative side of experiential retail. What are the pressures, either whether it be from venture capital to make a big splashy entrance into retail and have people lined up around the block and get pressed? Everyone's chasing that. And then how is that different from what you're creating at Showfields and what brands who are using experiential design and innovative design to enhance the customer experience in a data-driven way. How is that different for everybody who's listening? Well, I think it goes back to what Phineas was saying before of how the market has moved from acquisition of customers at whatever cost to profitability. Now, acquiring someone to buy a ticket to come into an experiential marketing moment and have 10 minutes with you and feel like they had a fluffy experience and took a bunch of pictures is not a really long-term great strategy for your brand or for a relationship with that consumer. So it's being built without intentionality of a long-term relationship. Whereas building around community and building around experience or for Showfields, you know, mixing retail with art, we have as many new brands as we have new artists and they're all emerging incredible artists. We're not building something to have a picture taken. We're giving a space to an artist and letting them build something that's meaningful to them. Uh, We're giving them full credit for that. We're paying them fairly. Like, There's a difference when you build a business with intention and there's a difference when you build a business for long-term profitability versus a flash in the pan. And I think what we're finding and what happened within startups in the last few years, and Phineas was pointing to it, is that people are investing in companies now that are showing sustained growth month over month versus these giant hockey sticks that are non-sustainable. And so as an investor, when I'm looking at companies now, I'm not looking for a hockey stick. And when I am looking to create value in the companies that we're working with for Showfields, I'm also not looking for them to have a hockey stick moment. I am hoping that I'm going to show them that over their six months at Showfields and sometimes a year, it depends if they get invited into the next curation, that we can show that month over month, their sales are growing, that month over month, their email list is growing, that they're having meaningful events in the space. And I think the backlash for me has been that brands believe they have to have this big Instagram moment. Uh, and they come to us and they want like a giant flower wall or a, or something that has no heart and no intentionality. And it's not because they are not well-intentioned businesses. It's just that they are like, okay, great. Well, we need a lot of attention in the space and there are 60 other brands and what should we do to get attention? And in actuality, the brands that just stick to their mission and tell their story are the most successful at Showfields, hands down. It's not about creating the Instagram moment without heart behind it. But, you know, for us, it's about creating moments that have meaning that people walk away and think about. I want people to feel like they did a crazy MoMA tour when they come through Showfields and got to go down a slide and got to meet 60 sustainable brands. Our next curation in Miami is entirely sustainable brands. And that's just like how incredible to have like the stress of, of having to figure out what is a good brand and something you should put your money behind just taken 
off the plate and then just see art that is all speaking to sustainability and climate change and see brands that are having that conversation. I just think it's about having bigger, more meaningful, meaty conversations versus fluff. No one wants fluff and fluff doesn't last. How did you land on including or making art such an important part of Showfields? It was there from day one for us. If you actually break down the word Showfields, show, which is 50% of the store, is actual art. And that can be performance art and that can be physical art, uh, experiential art. Um, and fields are our brand spaces. It's supposed to feel like a modern museum where you can touch and play with everything. You know, I think that <laughs> we call ourselves the most interesting store in the world. And it's not because we're interesting, like we're really not. It's because like we've created a system where we can give space to really interesting voices of this generation and diverse voices and give them a place to talk and to express themselves and they are interesting and that's why people come to the store they're not coming to the store to see what flexible retail looks like i promise they're coming because they want to see the art they want to meet the brands they want to touch the products they want to hear about these founders and we talk about like there being kind of this pop culture now around founders. They are a bit of the rock stars of our generation. And it's really cool to hear what each one of these people came up with and built and launched and to be able to take a piece of it home with you. And I feel that founders are as they're creatives in the same way artists are creatives in the same way musicians and chefs. I mean, we have an entire floor and in a, that in a non COVID world, uh, is just for events that are, you know, chef pop-ups and art classes and talks. It's bringing back the modern day community center. That was what shopping originally was. That was what retail was. You went and you touched silk for the first time or you tried a spice. You've discovered things to bring back into your own home. And that was always the fun of it. I think retail just stopped being fun. You went in and every store had the same things just lined up and you tried them on and you became that person. It's like, oh God, talk about loss of self-expression. What types of companies or experiences have you found that have worked better than others in show fields? And how, how has like the consumer experience evolved pre-COVID? So up until COVID started, what changed, what worked, what didn't work? I mean, there's a reason why we're doubling down on sustainable mission-driven brands. When we have mission-driven brands in the store, and by that I mean when mission is the thing that they want to talk about most, because we don't work with brands that are not doing something that's better for the world. But when they put their mission forward, their sales are up. And I think that has something to do with this generation and what they want to support. Good product, no matter what. If it's great product and you touch it and you feel it and you're like, wow, this is great. You're going to take it home with you. I think that there's a lot of junk out there and the future of retail is about narrowing down on the things that really should be in your home and things that really work and companies that are doing well in this world. And I think when we find something that amazes the team at the office, it's always going to be a hit at the store because the minute you see it, the minute you try it, you're bought in. And then you watch that person run into their friend a couple stores later within Showfields and be like, oh my God, did you try Nuria? Look, oh my God, look at my skin. Like it took the whole layer off. And they are then telling the story to kind of the, the next group of people. And, and that's what I think works best. So because the show is focused on startup culture, um, mm -hmm. a lot of our questions are going to continue to be through that lens. So I wanted to touch on one thing, which is when you started this company, I remember the first thing I thought was, that is one of the most ambitious <laughs> ideas I've heard in a long time because I have a, a long history in the retail landscape. And I really fundamentally understand what it takes to not only build, design, staff a store but also to operate manage sustain the PL of an individual retail store looks a whole lot different than the PL of a of a website on its own right and they're just completely different businesses the overlap is a lot less than most people think early on and then they realize that that's a totally different business and they're like wow this is a completely different skill set and a completely different business to operate one of the beauties of showfields when I had conversations with my contemporaries about it was what I thought Showfields could be for the startup community at its best was training wheels for mm -hmm. companies that want to go into retail 
but don't know how, don't know what they want. One of the issues in retail certainly is a misalignment of priorities of why they're opening their store. And there are so many brokers out there that are hammering these people, selling you this dream, and they're hammering people like Steven. And they're like, you know, if you get connected (laughs) to a broker, they are going to hound you and tell you that you got to open a 60,000 square foot, whatever. And don't worry, your $40,000 monthly rent is justified because it's going to completely transform your brand and bring it to the next level. What I think Showfields can be and probably is at this point is not just great exposure, not just an ability to sell product, not just being part of a larger experience that adds value to your brand, but also a way to learn about what retail actually means for you and what you actually want. And I would imagine, and this is getting to my question, I would imagine that there are as many brands that come into Showfields and have a great experience and say, I'm staying, or this is so great, I'm now going to go and open my own store. I bet there are an equal amount that go, oh, wow, Like I, I, I think this is maybe premature for us and we probably should pump the brakes. Do you experience that? And what has been the evolution of, because I know you meet with new brands all day, every day. Do you experience that? Was that a surprise for you when you started experiencing that? Or do you experience that at all? I mean, naivete is the reason we all start businesses. And it's the reason that we think that we can do it entirely differently than the people that came before. Any assumption I had going into this incredible idea that really was the brainchild of my co-founder, Tal, and and I really, he's the Walt Disney hero, right? He was like, we're going to open a store, we're going to make retail as a service, and we're going to take a four-story building on Bond in New York City. Like, shoot me now. I would never have been that ambitious knowing what I know now. But naivete is why businesses get built and why you end up breaking constructions that have existed for hundreds of years without even knowing you're doing it because you just don't know enough to know what you're doing is so outrageous. And in that way, I walked in thinking that we were also just going to open our doors and everyone was going to be incredibly successful and it was just going to be like Warby Parker for every brand and isn't it great? That's not reality. Like everything worth having takes work. And so I think that the only thing that we can do as a business is be fully transparent with every brand coming in about setting their expectations at the lowest possible rung of what could happen in retail for them, and then going above and beyond to deliver an experience that is so much more beyond that. But if that brand signs off on table stakes, and table stakes for me is you're learning, you're getting exposure, and you're getting sales to some degree, and those things mixed together make an ROI, if they're coming in like that, they're going to be successful no matter what. And that success can be at the end of six months being like physical retail is not for us. We had a great experience. We got a ton of PR. We, we met tons and tons of people and had this great time, but like we should not open a hundred stores. And that's success. Like that is success learning that instead of spending 10 X what they would have spent anywhere else to figure that out. Are you seeing that? Do you think that the culture of startups and this at times hubris that comes along with it, right? Heavy funding from venture capital, spend at all, growth at all costs, acquiring customers inexpensively online. That that culture that's been developing that now is really changing. When people come in your door and are exploring show fields, are you seeing that mentality? Like I think of the Instagrammable moment that you touch on. In my meetings too, it's like everybody wants to have this big Instagrammable moment. And I'm like, well, hold on, let's do a quick realignment of our priorities here. Why are we doing retail, right? And are you seeing in your meetings with people that the culture of startups has our priorities misaligned a little bit with how we approach retail? 10,000%. We shy away from brands that are new and emerging and walk in and say, we want your center window, whatever the price. Like, We love working with brands where we're like, great. So what is your expectation for sales? How many units do you want to sell? How much do you make per unit? Okay, great. Let's run the equation and then find out what space within show fields would actually work for you as a brand. And so before I'm ever approaching a brand and pitching a space and pitching an idea, when I actually do reach out and pitch, um, and that's when I'm like in love with a brand and I know they're going to be successful at show fields, I'm running the math. And if the founder is not also running the math, 
they're probably not going to be a good fit for us. What I'm hearing you say also is that your evolution in running Showfields has been honing in on who your customer is, right? And you're finding brands that have a common thread, which is the customer. Like one thing that we found in doing events at Borough House was that we could have brands that are very different on the surface that have nothing to do with furniture, but they work because we have the exact same customers. So a lot of our customers have pets. And so we'll do dog adoption parties and then have companies like Ollie and Wild One, you know, at our store. And that works really well. And people are like, wait, why is this, what does this have to do with couches? And like, it has nothing to do with couches or furniture at all. It has to do with who our customers are. And if our customers buy furniture and they also have pets and buy pet supplies, then that's the common thread and it works. And it sounds like that's what you're doing at Showfields too, because I've heard people say skeptically, like, what is this? This is just another mall that has these like gimmicky things to get people in the door. And what you're saying is, no, it's not what it is. We're providing people a really novel experience and we're introducing them to the brands that they're going to like. And that doesn't work if you have brands that are across a wide spectrum that serve very different customers, but it does work if you're serving the same customer who's probably going to have an interest in at least 50% of the brands they come across there, as well as the art and the other things that they learn and the, and the events. How fast did you approach or like arrive at who that customer was? And how big was that for the growth and success of Showfields? We opened all four floors on different schedules so that we opened the first floor, we were able to learn from it, then we opened the second, then we opened the third, then we opened the fourth. And everything changed between all of them, even the design of the spaces. And we, you know, staggered that opening on purpose in order to never spend money before we knew what the answer was. And at first, you know, we looked at the demographic that was passing by in the area. So at 11 Bond Street, you have Rumble, you have SoulCycle, you have the, one of the most successful and largest equinoxes. So we were like, this population really cares about health and wellness. We're next to Honey Brains. Like, it's a very health and wellness focused area. And to this day, 11 Bond Street the first floor, which is unusual for retail, is all wellness brands. They're all brands that are not only better for you, but they're better for the world. They are all clean cleaning products by Clean Cult and all natural beauty products. And they are, you know, things that we really believe that are focused around health and wellness. We've had everything from City Row in the window to Bull and Branch mattresses, which were organic mattresses. But, you know, it's about looking at the area and understanding who the demographic is. And I think now we understand who that customer is, but that customer is now one segment of our customers. We have three demographics that we go after. We go after the experience seeker, and that's someone who comes in to see the art, to ride the slide, uh, to try some of the products, but maybe they are less likely to actually leave with a lot of shopping bags. We go after uh, the creator, and that is people who are the artists, are the founders, are people involved in important movements within New York City and getting them into the space. They're interested in what's new, what's cool, what's different, and they they will shop, but they're very curated in what they pick and what they take home, which we love. We don't want someone to walk through and be like, I'll take everything. We really want someone to come through and consider the things that are going into their home. And then we have the collector, and that person is coming in for the art. They're coming in for the limited edition. They're coming in for the black quip toothbrush. But I think we, we very early on understood who the experience seeker was but it took us a while to elevate towards the collector and the creator. Um, I think they were a little out of our reach when we first began. Why is the experience seeker valuable to you? They bring so much light and levity into the space. They come for the performances and they come for the parties and they, they enjoy the space. They show up for every morning workout class and they make it more fun they're enjoying themselves. And I think when you're in a space and there are people who are going down the slide for the third time, found out that we have a speakeasy bar hosted by Boodles, it elevates the lightness of the space for everybody else. It just makes it fun. I don't care if they ever shop, they make it more fun for me to be in the store. <laughs> they enhance the experience for everybody else who might be buying, who may not stay as long as they do or visit as many stores as they do if 
they don't see all these people having a great time around them. Exactly. I mean, half of it is walking by Bond Street, looking in the windows and seeing people in there having a great time. You're like, what's going on in there? What is this place? I need to figure it out. I want to be in there. Uh, it's why, you know, we did a performance with Sleep No More in our windows one night and it made all this buzz because they looked like uh, circus clowns who were robbing the space during a party and people walking by thought maybe people were robbing us during the party and they kept being like, shh, like out the window to people on the street and everybody was like, what is going on in this weird store? That, I mean, that means we're doing something right. Because if I can, if I can barely explain it, it must be interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> So we've discussed a lot of examples of experiential retail done right. And I think Showfields represents a core idea of experiential retail at its best, which is iterative, meaningful, intentional, and meant to enhance the customer experience and elevate the brands that live within. I don't know if you read that Forbes piece on Museum of Ice Cream. I wonder if you might answer the question of the ways that Showfields and some of the things that we've been discussing today is different than what has taken place at Museum of Ice Cream, or at least what's being represented in that article and what's being discussed in the startup community right now as problematic when it comes to experiential retail. I will say that right now, people love to hold concepts up as success as much as they like to watch them fail. And I do think that there will be a lot of stories in the press about a lot of companies over the next few years that have a little bit of joy in, in the takedown of them kind of written in. And I don't think that's a good direction for us to go in as a culture. That's not to say that some companies don't deserve it and some founders aren't, you know, the people that they should be in this world. But I think at the end of the day, no one and no company is perfect, nor does it have a perfect track record. So I think there's a lot of potentially great intentionality behind places like Museum of Ice Cream. I don't know if they got lost in translation or they got lost somewhere in the company culture and didn't translate you know, it, that's to be determined. And I don't think I know enough about the inner workings of that company to really comment. I think for us, the only thing that we can do is build higher and create something with heart and mission. And I believe if you approach the world with a strong intentionality around the things you want to build, the things you want to see, and the things you want to hold up, that hopefully that story translates through every part of your company. And I'm sure there will be times where we miss the mark as well, and maybe come across from time to time as fluffy. Um, we have a slide from our third floor to our second floor. But the reason we have a slide from our third floor to our second floor is when we took a four-story building, everybody told us that no one would ever go to our third floor and those brands wouldn't be seen and no one would shop up there. Everyone would just go to the first floor. Over 95% of our foot traffic goes to the third floor now. And they go up there and they ride the slide and they have a fantastic time, but they also see all the brands. So it's not just building a slide for the hell of it. It's building something that actually moves traffic in a way that's different from traditional retail. Yeah, you're saying it's a strategic and authentic experience, so there's a purpose to it. Would the Museum of Ice Cream be different to you if it were launched by Ben & Jerry's? Um, I think that if each room in the Museum of Ice Cream was done by a different artist and there were larger political statements being made around it, which at times there are, I mean, the Museum of Ice Cream has been incredibly supportive of the LGBTQ community and has gone above and beyond to, to all of my understanding, actually be supportive and inclusive. I do think that it does have intentionality behind it. I don't know if something got lost within the company culture there. But to me, I think the difference between creating your own space and just making it like a sprinkle pit and you know, actually hiring an artist and being like, what's your vision of the Museum of Ice Cream and actually having uh, different people create rooms, I think 
there's a difference in, in trying to stand on your own and say that you can create a museum and creating a stage. They're different things. To your point earlier in the episode, you mentioned that there's a culture of enjoying watching the takedown of companies, and that's problematic in a lot of ways. However, I do think that there are things that we can acknowledge as problematic within the landscape that aren't a great representation of what we want as consumers or what we represent as operators or as people in this community. And I think Instagrammable moments, quote unquote, or inauthenticity when it comes to experiential retail, to Stephen's point, gives experiential retail a bad rap and potentially shines an improper light on companies like Showfields that are spending huge amounts of time, money, and effort to create value and experiences that are rich and that reflect the community that they're in and that support artists and that support small companies that don't want to spend a lot of money to learn these lessons. I think that there's a lot of value in what you guys are building that has next to nothing to do with a slide, right? I've done the slide several times. I think it's fun. (laughs) I'm, I'm the guy that went back up on the elevator and went back down the slide. And it was, it's both completely irrelevant to Showfields as a business and very relevant because it's a tiny extension of what Showfields is, not a reason to go to the store, right? It's an extension of a wider experience. And I think regardless of what happened with the Museum of Ice Cream, I totally agree with you. None of us were internal and we don't have to go too deep into it, but intentionality matters. Authenticity matters. I think to Stephen's point, it really does matter what your messaging and your story is and how that corresponds with who the founder is, because over time, we as consumers care about those things. It matters who's behind these businesses over time. And if we feel like we're being hoodwinked, people react, sometimes overreact to that. And with the pop culturization of startups, a lot of these things get blown way out of proportion. And you're right. like. The Museum of Ice Cream created an experience that a lot of people liked and a lot of people bought tickets and it was super fun for a lot of people. The conversation could end there, but because we put founders on pedestals and we have this culture that has been created around startups, everything is magnified and something as benign as creating something that certain customers don't think is great and maybe there's inclusivity issues gets blown into this whole big thing. And yeah, I think it's just the reason why people have a problem with that particular concept and Candytopia and and like all these is because when you ask yourself the question, like, what's the point? The point of those places is our obsession as a culture with Instagram and creating this like glamorous life that we can put out there for other people to see. And there's nothing more beyond that you are creating at Showfields an experience that's fun, but it's meant to enhance the discovery experience for your customers to come and discover art and discover brands. And you're honing in on that. And it's like any company, they have permission to do only so many things as a brand. Just like for us in furniture, we can create cool experiences related to furniture and the home, but we don't really have permission from customers to create crazy other things. And, and I'll give you an example. Like we had, we did have like an Instagrammable moment in our first store in the basement, albeit it was a basement that was previously a stock room. We didn't need to keep inventory there. So we were like, what can we do here? And we did a movie theater and that was cool. And then we also had this gift maker on a couch with a green screen. And we didn't really know why we were doing it and neither did our customers. And so nobody really used it. The thing that people were taking photos of was the upstairs space that was beautiful, right? It was a really nice living room and people were like, this is really cool. And the reason why they were taking photos of it was because they wanted to get inspiration for their own homes. That's what they were looking to us for. And so it made sense. And I think that's the challenge with some of these other concepts. And that's why I asked about Ben and Jerry's because I kind of feel like if Ben and Jerry's created a museum of ice cream that yes, did incorporate artists interpretation of it but it was actually tied to their ice cream and it was like they had a room for a new flavor and then you could buy that at the end and that was meant to like generate this like insane experience that you remember and become more of a loyal customer because of it i don't think anybody would really have a problem with it but when it's just purely surface level i think that's when people have this challenge and what you're talking about it is this 
sadistic pleasure in watching brands fail and founders fail, I think a lot of times stems from, and we talked about this in our last episode, it's when brands or the founders put forth something that they don't actually, and stand behind something that they don't actually have permission to stand behind, or it's too fluffy, or it's too materialistic or surface level, and people are secretly calling bullshit on them. And then when it crashes, they're like, yes, aha, like it crashed. And it's, we as a culture are the ones that are also putting them up in the first place. Right. Um, <laughs> we bought the tickets. Yep, we went. We sure did. And then we like celebrate their demise, which that's the part I have an issue with, right? It's okay to not think that something needs to exist in the world or to think that something is not what you want to experience or is different from how you would do it. And that's okay. I think you vote with your purse. You vote with your wallet. If you don't want those things to exist in the world, don't participate in them and then they won't get built. I think at the end of the day, we have the ability to actually hold up the things that we want to continue to see to be built in this world. Whether that is you want Museum of Ice Cream to exist or you want X brand to exist, it's your choice as a consumer. I think for, for Showfields and for all brands going forward, thank God we're going to be judged on our missions. Thank God we're going to be judged on the things that we stand behind. That is what consumers should do and should hold brands to. I don't believe in takedown culture, but I believe in holding people accountable for the decisions that they're making within their business and the decisions that they're making for their employees and their team. It's a great point. Uh, well, I want to close out with, I know one of the things I respect so much about you and your work is you're constantly evolving and you've touched on this throughout the episode, but you're constantly evolving and iterating and adjusting your business model. You open a retail business and you're building it and growing it and you're grinding. And then there's a global pandemic. Uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what are you doing at Showfields during this crazy time and what can we expect in the future? There was a 24-hour period in which I cried in March after having closed the doors. Owning a physical space when physical spaces can't be open is maybe one of the harder moments to have happen in my life, only because we were at a place where we we're about to open our second location. Everything was sold out. Everything that we had worked so hard for for two and a half years was finally like all gelling together. And it felt like the minute I was about to like peek behind that next curtain and be like, wow, look at all the hard work we did. It like really paid off. And like, we really have like two stores and like everything's working. And it was literally like, no, no, that's not going to happen now. And I also felt like the team and myself had been sprinting for two and a half years. And so we were exhausted. And so right before, or the big reward of all that work kind of coming together and there really being a profitable business there. You know, no one had like a full tank of gas left to fight a new battle. And I, I always think that's super challenging when everybody is kind of working on their reserves. So it was a new battle, a new challenge. And Tal did an incredible thing of really rounding up the troops and saying, we are a C-commerce business, meaning we are consumer commerce. How do we, in a world where we can't open our doors, maintain that story? Within three weeks, the team has launched live video shopping curation. So we have a live TV channel now that's on our website uh, and different tastemakers, everybody from art curators to different experts in different fields go live in these hour long shows where they talk about different products. They talk about different art. We've done live art auctions and this content is fascinating. And it's the same idea behind Showfields of telling a story behind the brands and having someone curate what you should be looking at and should be shopping because there's so much stuff out there. And so I feel very fortunate for that. And the other thing that we did is we just reopened the doors to 11 Bond Street, but we reopened with a ton of technology that's going to keep everybody safe, but also going to be really, really cool. And one of those things is the Magic Wand app, which is an app that allows you to fully go through the store. It's an audio tour where you can ask questions, learn about each and every single one of the brands, even hear about the brands from the founders of those brands, talking about them being the pop stars of our generation. But you can do that entirely, including checkout purchase without ever coming in contact with another person. But it just feels very much like getting to see behind the curtain in a different way. Like it feels like 
being in the MoMA at night when you're not supposed to. And to me, it's been really fun. And we're seeing three X the conversion rate of people coming into the store because I think people are getting this like unique moment where they're getting so much attention and, and so much love from our team that it's really converting on the other side. Post COVID, will you continue the digital experience, the magic wand? And if so, how transformational do you think that'll be for Showfields, number one and number two? Would you have done that so quickly and so well if it weren't for COVID? No. In fact, I tried to veto us having e-commerce as early as six months ago. I am so happy that I was wrong and that everybody fought me because they were right. And it has transformed our business. We have onboarded over a hundred new brands in the last seven weeks, uh, everybody from Saqqara to Saludos. And it is just a very, very cool experience that I don't think we would have had the time or energy to really focus on prior to. I love that. I think the best innovations come from really challenging situations. And you use the word museum a lot. I mean, I, I've talked to you a while ago about Showfields, and then I've talked to some of your investors about it, and the word museum comes up all the time. And I just feel like nothing says museum like either a group tour or an audio tour. And it's such a positive enhancement to the experience and really ties the consumer's mind to that more. I love it. I think that's a really smart idea. I'm glad that that's working now and it's going to be a permanent fixture in show fields. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've always been such a intensely positive force and person. And in the startup landscape, for me personally... And I, I just, I'm such a fan of how relentless you are with Showfields and how it's iterating and evolving. And I think there's a lot of really beautiful lessons in this episode about how to adapt your business model to be more valuable to your customers, to be more valuable to your team members, to a crazy changing landscape. And I'm just a big fan of that. I think we need more of that. And so thank you so much for coming on the show. It's another show of support for me personally, but also just a willingness to, to share your time with, with others is really, really valuable. So thank you. Anytime, guys. I mean, seriously, Finn. Since the first moment you walked into the Warby offices, it's been so fun to have our careers always seem to find each other in this crazy world. Always happy to support whatever you're working on. Always happy to spend time with Steven and try and pitch him on Showfield. So, you know, double win across the board uh, in all sincerity. Uh, thank you for giving me a moment in a hectic day to stop and be reflective on how far the team has come. It's been a pleasure. Class dismissed. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. If you are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.